0: Follow the money is one of those phrases you hear a lot in journalism. Just track the dollars and people's or government's motivations will reveal themselves. Sometimes that's easy. Others, it's way more complicated. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And this week, we are starting the first in a series of stories about the financial holdings of members of the Trump administration, our national ethics laws, and whether or why these things matter. So we start with this phrase, ethics be damned. That's the provocative title of the new investigative series from our colleagues at APM Reports. They spent six months looking into financial conflicts in the Trump administration and the office that's supposed to prevent them. Just this week, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, David Shulkin, became the fifth cabinet secretary to be caught in a travel-related ethics scandal. The department's inspector general found, quote, serious derelictions in a trip the secretary took to Europe with his wife, APM reports correspondent Tom Shack joined me and his ethics reporting led him to well a man being mauled by a bear. <laughs> um Tom, why are we listening to a scene from the 2015 movie The Revenant?
1: I don't know if you remember that movie at all, but it starred Leonardo DiCaprio, featuring him as a fur trader out there in the 1800s, struggling to survive in a harsh winter. That movie was nominated for a bunch of uh, Academy Awards. You saw all of these producers, Leonardo DiCaprio, other actors, and everybody was out on the circuit really pushing this movie. But there was one person who was not uh, doing anything. Michael Punk. He's the author of the book that this movie's based on. He doesn't say a word about this at all. Everybody was asking to try and interview this guy, and he basically said, I can't do it. His brother ended up speaking for him. His wife ended up doing interviews for him, but he never did anything.
0: And there's a reason for this. When he wrote the book back in 2002, he did it on the side while he was working as a lawyer in D.C., But by the time the movie comes out, he's part of the Obama administration. He's an ambassador and representative to the World Trade Organization in Geneva. Ethics officials decided he can't promote the movie based on his book.
2: Twelve Academy Award nominations. He's being flooded with requests for comments, quotes, interviews. He wasn't allowed to say or do anything because it would have been using his public office— to achieve a private gain.
1: Norm Eisen was the White House ethics lawyer under President Obama, and he's now working at the Brookings Institution.
2: That was what the rules required, and that actually was what we call in the ethics profession a teachable moment. It was a message to everybody else out there. Hey, this is how the rules work. You're doing public service. There are some things that are more important than promoting a book, than self-promotion. And the Oscar
3: goes to Leonardo DiCaprio.
0: We're going to fast forward from that Oscar ceremony. Donald Trump is now the president and...
1: And Steve Mnuchin is the Treasury Secretary. Everybody knows Steve Mnuchin as somebody who was with Goldman Sachs, but he also has a history as a movie producer. And he was speaking at a conference in March of 2017 that was hosted by Mike Allen, who was with the media organization Axios.
4: And what's, the, uh, what's a
5: movie that we should see?
4: Well, I'm not allowed to promote anything that I'm involved in, so I just want to have the legal disclosure. You've asked me the question, and I am not promoting any product, but you should send all your kids to Lego Batman.
0: I mean, you hear the laughter there. They're laughing at him breaking the rules and knowing it, he was a producer on that movie. And to ethics officials, that's a serious violation. Mnuchin did later apologize for it. But right there in those two examples, you see a 180 from how other administrations have handled cabinet members' private sector lives and their roles as public servants.
1: Well, we talked to a lot of ethics experts out there, six of them, and they all kind of pointed to this to say that Whether it was President Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton or George H.W. Bush, that all of them kind of honored this code of what the ethics system should be. They say the system can't handle the Trump administration because it has a lot of wealthy cabinet members. They say that President Trump himself has not been really uh, forthcoming or uh, standing firm in terms of ethics himself. And they worry about that. It's this
2: tone at the top that the president has set of contempt Uh, for ethics, by hanging on to his own conflicting investments that clash with uh, his public duties. And so this attitude, uh, very negative attitude, has crept throughout the administration. And I love all people, rich or poor, but in those particular positions, I just don't want a poor person. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I mean I,
0: I guess I actually want to engage with this and say, you know, d- does it matter? What's wrong with having wealthy people in the cabinet?
1: Well, let's be clear. There's nothing wrong with it at all. Uh, as long as folks divest their holdings or make clear how they're going to handle a conflict, one of the instances is they could recuse themselves or maybe they sell off all of their holdings. Those are the types of things that they're they're expected to do. Mm-hmm the problem is, is the ethics system right now, a lot of folks are saying that it's strapped. They say the Office of Government Ethics, which is the agency that handles a lot of these agreements out there in the financial disclosures, is underfunded. And they say that the Trump administration has basically exploited vulnerabilities in the system.
0: When you looked at what they helped, did you find self-dealing? Did you find conflicts that raise red flags?
1: Well, we're not really sure. Part of the reason is because some of these disclosure forms are so difficult to get through. So it's almost like we can't see what's under the hood of the car there. I'll give you an example of Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. He said he was going to hold on to his shipping interests. We spent about three to five months going through those uh, shipping interests. We had to go through LLCs. We had to find out what companies they were linked to. We had to get forms from the Bahamas, the Cayman Islands. His form had about $700 million in assets out there, and so it was really difficult. Another person we can mention is uh, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Her form was 108 pages long. It's just as difficult. Steve Mnuchin, his financial disclosure form is about 42 pages long.
0: All of this raises the question of who is overseeing the ethical conduct of the Trump administration?
1: Well, it's this sleepy little agency called the Office of Government Ethics, and they process and review financial disclosure forms, and they basically advise the administration. Essentially, a lot of people say that they're like the guardrails. They're the ones who advise them and say, you don't really want to do that because you may be violating the law or you may be stepping across the line there. But there's a lot of things that people say there are problems with. One, they don't have any enforcement power, so they can't say, you have to do this. They don't have subpoena power, so when a cabinet member gives them the financial disclosure forms, they can ask a lot of questions, they can get some information back, but at the end of the day, uh, they can't say, you have to give us this. And The other thing that folks are saying is that they don't have enough staff, so it's really hard for them to process this paperwork for this whole administration that's come on board.
2: I'm 100 percent sure that the oversight is not 100 percent complete right now.
1: That's Walter Schaub, who oversaw the whole ethics process around the new Trump administration. He served as the director of the Office of Government Ethics, but he resigned last July after battling with the White House.
2: It just started out as chaos and stayed chaos all the way through, which led to them being behind on filling key presidential appointments. It led to them... Essentially signaling to their own nominees, intentionally or unintentionally, that ethics doesn't matter.
1: He'd been in his job for a really long time. He was there with the Obama administration and even back to the Bush administration where he started back in 2001. And you never saw Walter Schaub. He didn't do press conferences. He didn't do news shows. But then, Thank you very much. It's very about a week before the inauguration, Trump publicly announces his plans for his business, what he wants to do with those holdings that he had. And Trump was literally standing next to a table full of manila folders.
2: But These papers are all just a piece of the many, many companies that are being put into trust to be run by my two sons. And I hope at the end of eight years, I'll come back and I'll say, oh, you did a good job. Otherwise, if they do a bad job, I'll say, you're fired. Goodbye,
1: everybody. Well, a few hours later, Schaub steps in front of his own TV cameras and basically criticizes his future boss.
2: I wish circumstances were different, and I didn't feel the need to make public remarks today. You don't hear about ethics when things are going well. You've been hearing a lot about ethics lately.
0: So Walter Schaub now works at the Campaign Legal Center, a nonprofit, nonpartisan watchdog for government ethics and oversight. And he's taken a pretty public stand here.
1: That's right. He's on uh, Twitter. He's on TV all the time. He's even written some newspaper uh, op-eds talking about the problems that he sees in this administration.
0: Now, we have actually seen several cabinet members step down after things that looked bad, uh, conflicts of interest or misuse of public funds. That led to public outcry. There was Director of Health and Human Services, Tom Price.
4: The breaking headline from the White House,
1: President Trump demanding the resignation of Tom Price. Price
0: has been under fire for his use of chartered aircraft. who was and outed by the press for taking private, private jets on the taxpayer's dime when he didn't need to. He left. He and recently the head of the Centers for Disease Control, Brenda Fitzgerald, resigned. After it came out, she'd bought stock in Tobacco Company. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention needs a new leader. So, director, I mean, would some Dr. people Brenda say, look, Fitzgerald, the Trump administration is dealing with ethics and and the people are being ousted after bad behavior.
1: Well, that's right. I've talked to a lot of people who have actually said that. A Republican who chaired the House Government Oversight Committee, he said people shouldn't worry about the wealth of Trump's cabinet and he said they're not joining the administration to line their own pockets. What he was basically saying is if you start to impose too big of a burden, too many regulations on people who may want to join the government, what's going to happen is that they're going to, not going to want to do it at all and they're going to risk good people basically not joining the government at all. But ethics officials are actually worried. When I talked with the acting head of OGE, David Apoll, this is the guy who took over when Walter Schaub left in July, he brought up a recent poll by a group called Transparency International. It showed a majority of Americans polled believe public corruption is getting worse.
2: Loss of public trust is probably the most immediate threat to democracies today rather than military invasion. Public trust is diminishing, and that's a challenge to our democracy that we need to
1: address. ball's response to that concern, he sent a memo basically to the agency heads reminding them of their ethical responsibilities. But again, his office really can't make anyone do anything.
0: Next week, more on the Office of Government Ethics, including how it came to be in the first place. Tom Sheck of APM Reports will join me for that. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you. You can read more about Tom's investigation, Ethics Be Damned, at Marketplace.org. The U.S. lags behind Iceland, Rwanda, and Nicaragua when it comes to pay equity for women. That's according to a recent report from the World Economic Forum. In the U.S., on average, women earn about 80 cents for every dollar a man makes, according to the Department of Labor. Think about it like this. This is the sound of men's average pay, a metronome at 100 beats per minute. To get women's pay, on average, we change that to 80 beats per minute. Why this happens comes down to a bunch of factors we'll look at today. First, some women just get paid less than men for the same jobs, like what happened to Julie Fager. So the summer I graduated from high school, I got
3: hired to be a lifeguard, and I was working for a company in Northern Virginia where I grew up, and then found out that if I got this license to be something called a pool operator, that I could get paid more per hour. You can actually work at a pool alone instead of having a pool that has like a separate manager. And I also loved working at a pool by myself because most of the time there weren't very many people there, which meant I could hang out and read and, you know, get a tan. Later on in the summer, and I guess it was probably in August to reward those of us who had stayed for most of the season, the company actually closed down all the pools and we had a lifeguard Olympics. And the team that I was on, we happened to win. And We were really good at treading water for, you know, 25 minutes and pretending to save people. And our prize was to get to go for a whole day to have. party on the owner of the company's boat on the Chesapeake Bay. For an 18-year-old, that's pretty epic. I was talking to someone else who had the same job as me, who was a lifeguard, who was a pool operator, and it somehow came out that he was getting paid more. We had exactly the same experience, exactly the same license, and he was getting paid, you know, let's say $8 an hour, and I was getting paid $7.50. that made me incredibly mad you know I grew up with like feminist activist parents and you know I certainly knew that pay inequity was a thing but I didn't expect that it was a thing in 1998 and so it was just like oh my god this is still happening and it's happened to me I felt like I had to do something about it So I did. I wrote a letter to the president of the company. You know, it was like a total charm offensive. You know, this very like, oh, I love working for this company and it's so great. And I'm sure that it was an accident that this guy who has exactly the same job as me and exactly the same qualifications is getting paid more. And I'm sure that you as a you know modern, young, cool businessman would not want to have your business become known for engaging in in discriminatory behavior. Also being like, you don't want me to do anything more about this, right? <laughs> and, you know, and I and I proposed a solution. Like, I think what you should do is you should pay me for the extra 50 cents per hour that this other guy was getting paid for every single hour that I worked for the entire summer. And I thought, oh, he will never agree to that. You know, that'll be so much money. He's going to say no. He wrote me back and said it was a really nice letter and agreed to give me the money in my last paycheck. So... For the bargain price of $250 in back pay, he made this situation go away. But I got the extra money, and I was going away for my first semester at college, so it made a big difference. And I went back and I worked there again the next summer, and my brother worked there, so, you know, we left on good terms. I'm 37 now, and if I could give advice to, you know, young men and women that are being lifeguards or whatever job they're doing... Find out what the service that you're providing is worth. It's the job of the employer to maximize their resources and to pay you as little as they can get away with. That's always gonna be their their priority. And your priority should be not to work for any less than than you can get. And talking to your coworkers about money, I mean, it's awkward, but it's the only power that you have in the workplace.
0: Of course, it's not just summer jobs. The wage gap runs through and across different industries. Catherine Burhide studies it. She's a professor of sociology at Skidmore College, and she's also experienced it in her own life.
6: I first realized it when I became department chair. And when that happens, you actually get to see the salaries in your department. And I discovered that I was actually making less money than my junior colleague, and I had had no idea. And what'd you do? As chair, you walk in and you have a conversation with the dean where you advocate for the salaries of your colleagues. And the dean, of course, took one look at where my salary was. And I got a very nice raise that year. I think he was felt guilty.
0: Can, can you help us unravel a couple of things about the wage gap? Because there are these conversations that we seem to have over and over again about why women and men in the United States make different amounts of money, When we control for things like education um, and race, uh, what, what do we find?
6: Well, the wage gap is complicated, and of course, the first thing people say is, well, it's because women or people of color have less education or they have less experience. That is, it's some non-discriminatory factor that explains the wage gap. And it certainly is true that you can find that those factors matter. But when you do statistical analyses that take that into account, you discover that, in fact, women and people of color continue on the average to make less money than their white male counterparts do, even when you control for um, meritorious reasons for why someone might make more money than someone else. And so if you think of college faculty, we all have the same educational uh, backgrounds, Uh, there are so few people in that line of work who don't have PhDs that you've taken that explanatory factor off the Hmm. table, and then you still see that there's a wage gap.
0: How do we unpack the role of motherhood here? Because that, of course, is another argument. People say, well, women are more likely to take time off after having a child, or maybe they go out of the workforce. Um, What do we know from the data
6: There's something we call the motherhood penalty, and basically we find that women who are mothers make less money than uh, women who are not, even controlling for their years out of the labor force. So there's something that occurs when you're looking at two people and saying, well, this one has children. Uh, And she may be paying more attention to them than she is to her job. And therefore, we're going to give these opportunities to these other women who are going to not have uh, obligations outside of the workplace. And therefore, they're going to have the opportunity to excel and therefore get a raise. Family issues
0: are another place where the U.S. has a lot of work to do. How does this shank out for different income brackets? Because I know that... College-educated women, certainly right out of college, do pretty well compared to their male counterparts. And in some ways, the inverse can be true for folks without a college education. But how does this work both in different income brackets and then over time?
6: Well, ironically, um, the wage gap is actually greatest at the top. Mm -hmm. Entry-level wage-setting practices are the ones that it's easiest to – Uh, demonstrate some kind of discriminatory intent. So therefore, you're much less likely to have the big wage gaps at the starting level and at lower level jobs. That means, of course, that over time, a small difference will grow into a much larger one if nothing is done to intervene. Every employer, certainly every large employer, needs to do, as many of them do, a wage analysis every year so that they are looking to see that inequality um, has crept into their wage-setting practices.
0: Catherine Burheid, a professor of sociology at Skidmore College, thank you so much. You're welcome. And next week on the show, we'll look at the wage gap from the employer's point of view. Earlier this week, the Trump administration released a $4.4 trillion federal budget proposal.
2: In the budget, uh, we took care of the military like it's never been taken care of before. Even though it doesn't balance within the 10 year window, this budget still represents
7: the second largest reduction in proposed spending of any budget ever. Policies
2: in the budget will drive down spending and grow the economy.
0: That was President Trump, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, and Budget Director Mick Mulvaney. You heard Mulvaney, a former member of Congress and known deficit hawk, admitting he would have voted against this plan because this proposed budget would add to the deficit and eventually the national debt. The GOP used to be pretty anti-deficit. This budget plan and the new tax law are not. Now concerns about deficits and debt can be confusing. So let's break it down with this analogy. Picture a bathtub.
2: Splish, splash, I was taking a bath. If you think about the
7: water in a tub as the national debt, water flowing into a tub can be thought of as the deficit, uh, the amount of money that the government has to take out and borrowing each year because it's spending more than it's taking in.
0: That's David Primo, a senior affiliated scholar at George Mason University's Mercatus Center. And when it comes to the national debt, yeah, he's not so sure there's a party going on.
7: The concern that economists have is that at some point, if that water keeps flowing into the tub, uh, it, the tub's gonna overflow and you've got a, you've got a mess on your hands, uh, or in the case of, of the national debt, you've got a crisis on your hands.
0: Well, so this is really kind of the the, I guess we could say, multi-trillion dollar question. <laughs> Do deficits matter if we, as the United States, really unlike any other country in the world, have the ability to issue debt that the markets gobble up. Right now,
7: uh, one could make the argument that uh, that they don't matter. Uh, that in fact, they might be a good thing, right? We could argue that the the tax cuts and the spending increases we're seeing in the latest budgets are going to to sort of amplify the already positive trends we're seeing in the economy. But there's a, a flip side to that. At some point, our debt is going to get so large, That it's going to drive up interest rates. Other countries, other individuals are going to stop being as uh, interested in buying up our debt, especially if there's a concern that we may at some point not be able to to pay it back. And that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about the long run.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, because if you're a regular person, um, does this really impact you at all? It can impact you in
7: a couple of ways. If this increase in the deficit that is fueled by tax cuts and fueled by spending increases leads to an improvement in economic growth, that's actually a a, a benefit for you in in the short run. Or if it leads to higher interest rates and you're a saver and all of a sudden you're getting more money for that savings in your bank account, that's a positive for you. The negative is that interest rates going up means that if you're a borrower, you're paying more. But it's the long run that we should be starting to think about now, but we're not. You should be concerned about the size of the the national debt in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years, and its effects on your ability to retire, and its effects on your ability to get health care, and so forth.
0: Well, so there's this sort of famous argument among economists um, that at some point, rising levels of debt could slow growth. And yet I wonder like is anybody out there saying, "Yeah, the United States just isn't a good bet fiscally." I mean, we're still the United States. We're still we're still the elephant in the room. And that's
7: sort of the benefit of being the United States and also the risk of being the United States. So the hmm. benefit as you just said is right now we have the ability as a country because we are the world reserve country to perhaps take on more debt than other countries can. American debt, by comparison, is very, very safe. And as a result, there's still a lot of demand for our debt. And the interest rates are low. And and interest rates are low right now. But a lot of this debt that's being issued is short-term debt. What happens when that debt has to be reissued and interest rates that other countries and individuals will demand to buy up that debt goes up? All of a sudden, the, the fiscal picture gets gloomier. And, you know, there isn't an announcement that's made, oh, tomorrow, the rest of the world is going to stop buying up U.S. debt. It can happen very suddenly. How do we know? How do we know when we're going to get to the crisis? Yeah. That's the risky part, what economists like to call a creeping risk. Today, it's not going to affect us. Tomorrow, it's not going to affect us. But it builds up over time, and eventually, you end up in a crisis situation. If our national debt doubles again, as it's predicted to do as a share of the economy in the next 30 years... For the average American, it's going to have an effect on the ability for the federal government to undertake the activities that Americans think are important. So there's a lot of talk about uh, how Republicans want to, you know, eviscerate entitlements.
0: And when you say that, we mean Medicare and Social Security.
7: Yes. If some action isn't taken now to shore up Medicare, to shore up Social Security... Uh, those programs are going to be in far more jeopardy in, in 10, 20 years than they are today.
0: So if you're a voter and you're listening to this and, and either you say, yay, tax cuts are going to stimulate the economy or wait a minute, I want Medicare to, to be around when I retire, um, what do you do?
7: I like to make the analogy or the connection to retirement. You know, if, if your time horizon is that I plan to retire in 20 years, 30 years, it's easy to not think about it. It's easy to not worry about it. Uh, but The earlier you start dealing with it, the better off you are. So if you're the average member of the public, one thing you could think about is, well, if it's as it seems likely – Uh, We're not going to see immediate action on dealing with the debt and deficit problems we face as a country. Uh, What is that going to mean for my financial situation in 20 years? And that has to be factored into things like retirement planning uh, and savings. The challenge that we all face as human beings is we don't like to think that far into the future. It's very hard for us to do. That's why so many of us uh, don't save enough for retirement. For the same reason that you should eat healthy today so that you don't get heart disease in 20 years, we should start thinking about the federal debt today.
0: The administration in Congress uh, just passed and then signed into law a pretty large deficit finance tax cut. D- does that add to the situation? I wouldn't
7: argue that the tax cut is is the cause of our debt and deficit problems, but it is sort of a, a, additional water in that, in that tub, if you will. Mm. Uh, it, it's just adding to an already existing problem. The challenge that we face politically is that If you are a politician today and you say, you know, we do have a debt and deficit problem. And as more and more individuals retire, need Medicare, need Social Security, we need to do something to make those programs sustainable over the long run. That is a politically dicey proposition. Elected officials, above all else, want to be reelected. And it's very difficult when you face a, a public that is much more likely to punish you for what are perceived to be cuts and entitlements than they are to reward you for saying that you're going to reduce the national debt and prevent a crisis 20 years down the road. And that's the challenge is that we're that politicians and to some extent voters are short run focused. But our problem is a long run problem.
0: David Primo from George Mason's Mercatus Center and the University of Rochester. Thank you so much. Thank you. week on the show, we talked about so-called work spouses and how, according to a poll by Gallup, a work bestie can be good for business, especially for women. We heard from one pair, Hannah Halliwell and Brandy Jordan. They co-own a business in Los Angeles. And, well, one caller, Manny from South Carolina, took issue with that.
4: Co-owners can't be work wives and work husbands uh, because they can't complain about their boss. <laughs> you know, um, that's the whole point. You go to a happy hour and you complain about your boss or your your job duties or or, or something like that. And um, that's a key part of having a work spouse that you can commiserate together. And although business partners and co-owners can commiserate together, they can't commiserate about each other.
0: (laughs) We also heard from John, a pediatric nurse in Michigan. He says there aren't too many men in his profession, and that changes relationship dynamics.
7: Um, I found that there's boundaries to having a, a best friend when all the people around you are women and um by changing my job to incorporate working on every single floor uh, i feel connected i feel uh, i know everyone but there's there's not that necessarily that ne- that depth of one to one friendship purely from a, a male female ratio so anyway i thought i'd call in and share my story thanks
0: got a comment about something you heard on the show leave us a message like john and manny did at 1-800-648-5114. And you can also get a jump on what we're talking about every week via our newsletter. You can find details on how to subscribe at Marketplace.org. And this week, Americans got a special look at the previous First Lady, Michelle Obama or rather her official portrait.
5: I'm also thinking about all of the young people, uh, particularly girls and girls of color, who in years ahead will come to this place and they will look up and they will see an image of someone who looks like them hanging on the wall of this great American institution.
0: That institution is the National Portrait Gallery, where the painting by artist Amy Sherald will live. And just like when she lived in the White House, there's a lot of attention on what Mrs. Obama is wearing in the picture. A dress designed by Michelle Smith, who founded the label Millie.
8: Well, I was originally contacted by Mrs. Obama's stylist named um, Meredith Coop, And she said... Mrs. Obama may want to wear Millie for her official portrait, and I was so excited. And um, they already had an idea... Of the type of dress that they were interested in.
0: The dress was part of Smith's 2017 Spring Collection, a breezy, full length, arm revealing creation with a black top and a bold graphic print on the skirt. Retail, Smith says it would run about $600. Not cheap, but a lot less than many high end designers. But Mrs. Obama got the star treatment, starting with sketches. So from
8: there, I already had Mrs. Obama's measurements from making other styles for her during the presidency. Um, So I made the dress, we went ahead and cut it Sent it to D.C. And then about six
0: months ago, Smith got confirmation that her design would be used for the portrait. And then I just kind of, I was working so hard, I kind of forgot it was happening. That was until her publicist called her last week and said,
8: Oh my gosh, they're going to unveil the dress! <laughs> I was shopping in the Marais, it was the day that I had arrived in Paris, and I, yeah, I just started flipping out in the jean shop, uh, jumping up and down and screaming, and the sales lady was looking at me like I was crazy, But it was a really, really exciting moment um, because I had just kind of forgotten about it for a while, you know, and then it popped back into my life in the most amazing way.
0: Tell me about the print in the skirt. I gather that there may be some inspiration from traditional quilts in there. Um, Yes,
8: the print is a a geometric print, which um, mixes rectangles, triangles and circles and um, for me, it's a very modern, forward-thinking print. Um, and some references have been made to the Gee's the Bend quilt and the women of Gee's Bend, um, which I think is a beautiful reference and a very uh, poignant reference for the print. They were African-American quilters. Yes. Um, there's a small community in Alabama called Gee's Bend. And these women have been making quilts um, since slavery. And I I believe a lot of the women descended from one particular plantation in the area. Hmm. And they passed on their quilt making tradition um, for generations. They're really, really beautiful quilts.
0: What were you trying to convey message-wise with this dress? Or, Or what message do you think it conveys when you see it in the portrait? Um I think that the dress
8: really does show the personality of Mrs. Obama in the dress. when I'm looking at the portrait, she's it just shows her her beauty, her inner beauty, her intelligence, um, her realness. And yeah, I think that because the dress is made of a simple fabric, but it's in she's in a very regal pose and it's, you've got this big sort of swath of fabric. Um, that it looks very grand the way that a first lady should. But I do love that touch of
0: realness that is so Mrs. Obama. What what term do you think you would use for kind of Millie's line? You know, she could have chosen um, Valentino. She could have chosen Derek Lamb. She could have chosen a really kind of high-priced couture designer. And yet your line is not that. It's more affordable. What what message does that send? It is,
8: I think, Perhaps she chose me because I am a little, I am more affordable and I'm, if you will, a bit more democratic price point. Um, And my clothing is made in the USA. It's made in New York City, which I think is also a really nice point to be wearing an American designer Um, and to be wearing a female designer. Um, I think it's great that the first lady, her portrait was painted by a woman and she's wearing a dress created by a woman I think um, it's a very special thing.
0: All right, I'm a a business reporter. i got to ask you, you know, you have designed for many high-profile clients, and and certainly uh, Mrs. Obama has worn your label before, but uh, I'd imagine this is going to be pretty good for business.
8: (laughs) I think so. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe the press we're receiving on this. I mean, I do believe it because this is the most amazing thing that can happen to a designer, Um, and it's such an honor. But, yes, I mean oh, my gosh, I'm receiving a lot of attention. Millie's receiving a lot of attention. It's a really exciting moment, and um, I'm just just so honored. It's hard to speak. I'm so
0: honored. Michelle Smith is the creative director and founder of Millie, and she designed the dress Michelle Obama is wearing in her recent portrait. Thank you so much. Thank you. And you can see a sketch of the dress on our website, marketplace.org. This is opening weekend for the movie Black Panther, a great big superhero movie with a predominantly black cast. And there's tons of excitement around it, in part because the movie business and the Academy Awards, which are coming up in two weeks, have been heavily criticized for lack of diversity. But the movie world's cousin, television, may have some lessons in both diversity and how to make money from it. Christabel and Sia Boadi has that story. I
5: right, show me what we did.
0: Wait, what was this note?
5: Tanya Serracho is working with her editor, Joanne, to put the final touches to an episode of her new show, Vida, which debuts on the Stars Network later this year.
6: Well, that's the one they liked, right? That is what they liked. Let's just keep
5: that. The show centers around two Mexican-American sisters who return to East Los Angeles after their mother dies.
6: You know, I support any way you want to
3: identify.
5: I don't identify as anything. I'm just me. Soracho created the show after meeting with Marta Fernandez, the senior vice president of original programming at STARS.
6: First of all, to have someone, to have an executive um, who is Hispanic um, was amazing because you don't, you don't go into these meetings and see, you know, people like you.
5: Soracho also learned about the network's commitment to diversity.
6: They wanted a, a Latina and there are not a lot of Latina showrunners, you know, STARS is sort of nurturing them.
5: But Marta Fernandez says the decision to work with Soracho wasn't just because she's Latina. It was a business decision, too. It was really the beginning of the network identifying that underserved audience and the shows that were programmed to them, like Power and Outlander, were working very well for us. Just how well? We open up a nightclub to clean the money. What if it can be more than that, though, man? Well, according to Stars, Power, which is executive produced by the rapper 50 Cent and has an African-American lead, had 4.7 million multi-platform viewers in its first season. By season four, it almost doubled its audience to 9.3 million, making it the second most watched show on premium cable, right behind Game of Thrones so it made sense for the network to double down on this winning approach. Here's Marta Fernandez again. So, of course, we wanted to look at what is the the next group that doesn't have real programming for them on premium cable. And, of course, Latinos being the fastest-growing demo in this country, that was um, our obvious next target.
4: Some networks, um, you know, they look... Now, like they did five years ago, and then others like Stars are doing a really good job in diversifying their content.
5: That's Darnell Hunt, Dean of Social Sciences at UCLA and the co author of the Hollywood Diversity Report, which is released annually.
4: They got the memo that this is where audiences are now. I mean, the American public is nearly 40% minority.
5: There's another reason for TV's change of heart the internet. Nancy Wang Yuen, author of Real Inequality, says the internet has forced TV executives to pay attention to content that doesn't stick to the same old narratives and characters.
0: YouTube is now where the entertainment industry is finding new talent. Like why cast, you know, a new actor who we don't know if she or he is going to hit, but why not, you know, cast someone who already has a great following? And so what's exciting about YouTube is that some of the biggest actors on YouTube are people of color and a lot of them are women of color as well.
5: Like Lily Singh, who has over 13 million subscribers.
0: Right, of
3: course, YouTube, and obviously I know YouTube. Yes. While
5: YouTube has an influence on the entertainment industry as a whole, TV has the edge over its big screen counterpart when it comes to producing inclusive content. Darnell Hunt explains why.
4: Television, the barriers to entry are a little lower. We had like 1,200 or so TV shows in our, in our database. That's 1,200 opportunities for people to get involved, whereas you're only talking about a couple hundred films.
5: Even though some of the most profitable movies of recent times have been created by and starred people of colour.
2: So look, I go do my research. Apparently a whole bunch of brothers been missing in this suburb. But it's cool.
5: Girl, how are you not scared of this, man? We haven't hung in five years. I miss you guys. We need a girls trip. My son, it is your time.
2: Show me my respect and bow down. You get to decide what kind of king you are going
5: to be. Think Oscar-nominated Get Out, which has made $250 million to date, Girls Trip, which made over $140 million worldwide, and who can forget Marvel's Black Panther, which is expected to do big things at the box office. Darnell Hunt says there's another reason for Hollywood's reticence.
4: Ever since the Great Recession, you know, in the mid-2000s, Hollywood was making something like 30% fewer major films. And as we've seen throughout the history of this country, when there is less of something happening, the people who tend to have the hardest time breaking in are people of color and women.
5: Hunt adds that this will demand a restructuring of the industry, where you have people of color and women in decision-making positions. On the TV front, Fatanya Soracho and her team on VIDA that's already happening. We have Afro-Dominican, we have a white Chilean, we have uh, indigenous Salvadorian, you know, we
6: have uh, diversity in the room and also like half of the people in the room are are queer, you know. And when you go to my set, like uh, my first and second ADs are female and, you know, my second ADs are Latinas, like it, it just happened. It wasn't like a mandate, but it was like, hey, be mindful, just look a little further to see if, You know, you can give access to these people.
5: In Los Angeles, I'm Christabel Insiabwadi for Marketplace.
0: You're listening to Marketplace Weekend, or ear, radio, thumbs up. That was me trying to describe our show in emojis. You know, those little digital images like the crying with laughter face or the smiling poo for your texts, posts and tweets. 157 new emojis will be added to our keyboards this year, including female superhero, mosquito and lobster, each an idea submitted by the public. But there's a money angle, of course. As Marketplace's Peter Bellin Rosen reports, emojis are changing both how we communicate and how advertisers reach us.
9: For Florrie Hutchinson, the creator of the new ballet flat emoji, the day it all happened began with her at the grocery store.
10: This is not leisurely shopping. It is definitely mission-focused shopping.
9: Because she was there with her three daughters, ages six months, four, and five. A lot to juggle. There, the older two grabbed a Disney book called Polite as a Princess.
10: And of course, there wasn't a polite as a prince, so in that moment of sleep deprivation, I took a picture of the book, I put it on Instagram, I tagged Disney and said, would love to see polite as a prince.
9: She thought if they're going to tell girls how to act, they should tell boys too. She then headed off to buy a new stroller.
10: As I scanned them all, I realized that out of the 25 plus options of baby carriers, there was only one on which the packaging featured a dad.
9: Hutchinson sighed. Again, more gender roles.
10: And around 3 a.m. that night, after our six-month-old woke up and I finished nursing,
9: she started a text message to her sister.
10: The emoji that Otto populated for the word shoe was a red high-heeled stiletto.
9: A fire engine red stiletto. She looked through the emoji keyboard. The only other women's shoes also had heels. And everything from the day flooded back.
10: You can't scream at 3 a.m. when there are two children who are actually sleeping as well as a husband. But um, I channeled my frustration into Google.
9: And she learned emojis are crowdsourced anyone can submit an idea to Unicode, the group behind Emojis. So she sent an email to a vice chair there saying,
10: I'd like to propose a flat shoe alternative. And to her credit, she immediately answered within a matter of, I think, an hour. Um, So she was obviously sleep deprived too, and said, this is a good idea. Deadline is July 1st. It
9: was late May. So over the next month, Hutchinson whipped up a proposal for a small blue ballet flat and submitted it. In August, it was included on a shortlist for possible new emojis.
10: From one day to the next, it kind of went viral and suddenly became very much this feminist symbol. A lot of people understood that I was fundamentally questioning the notion that women only wear heels.
9: A few months later, Unicode announced its new emojis.
10: And there, in the mix of 150-plus emoji, is my little blue ballerina flat. (laughs) And I literally died.
9: As emoji grows, how we communicate grows. And you best believe someone's trying to make a buck off of that. Uh, If somebody tweets using an emoji, that can be a factor in which you can target your ads. Aaron Goldman is chief marketing officer at 4C Insights. They're one of six companies that works with Twitter to offer emoji targeted advertising. Sending you ads based on the emojis, you tweet. Basically, if someone puts a thumbs up or a smiley face, then show them this ad. If they do a frowny face or a thumbs down, show them a different ad. Twitter has sold people's emoji use to advertisers like 4C since 2016. You know, we've seen people targeting uh, football and basketball emojis for, you know, athletic wear. But emojis can also help advertisers know who you are. There's different shades, literally, of, of um, emojis. So if you're trying to um, potentially reach a, a, a certain type of uh, group that's more likely to use a, a certain type of skin tone, that's an opportunity as well. He's talking about race. Goldman's company, 4C, has hundreds of clients that use emoji targeting. A Twitter ad for a fast food company got almost three times as many likes, retweets, and comments when they targeted people based on their emojis. And that may come down to the emotion part of emoji. TJ Hughes is a strategic account manager with AdParler, another company who offers emoji-targeted ads.
4: Advertisers don't
7: want to sell you something if you don't want it, right? It wastes our dollars and it wastes your time. So if we can make advertising relevant, that's, that's the beauty of it.
9: Data like your age and gender give advertisers info about you. Emojis get in your head. Like last fall, Toyota ran an ad campaign to match people's moods based on their emoji use. They took 83 different emojis, created 83 different videos, and sent the ads out accordingly. That's really inappropriate. Jamie Kort is the president of the nonprofit Consumer Watchdog. In case you didn't get that, he's super not into this.
4: When companies start to create a psychological profile of people based on their emotions and then advertise them based on that profile, that's intrusive. People are not used to uh, tweeting an emoji for a piece of pizza and then getting an ad for a weight loss center or for Weight Watchers. Not that that's happened
9: yet. When the 157 new emojis hit keyboards later this year, there'll be 157 more things to track, like Flory Hutchinson's Little Blue Ballet flat.
10: That's kind of creepy. (laughs) But um, I think technology is going that way.
9: She says if someone tweets her shoe, they might now at least get ads for realistic footwear. For Marketplace, I'm Peter Balanon-Rosen.
0: And that is it for this Marketplace weekend. The show is produced this week by Peter Balanon-Rosen and Paulina Velasco. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer, and Daniel Powell is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.